Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Welcome back to the latest episode of Marxist Voice, uh, the podcast of Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. Now, last week we spoke to Natasha, a comrade in Sheffield, who's a teacher and an NEU member, and she discussed with us the situation about schools and education. And uh, now tonight we're going to be talking about the situation inside the NHS and the healthcare system. Uh, we're going to be joined by another essential worker, Raj, who's a, a junior doctor uh, and a BMA member um, in one of the most hard-hit hospitals in the country, down in the southeast of England. It's going to remain anonymous for tonight uh, because, unfortunately, doctors have been uh, punished and uh, faced disciplinary uh, pressures uh, for speaking out during the pandemic about the conditions inside the NHS. So he's going to be joining us uh, just via audio call for tonight. And, uh, and Raj is going to be speaking to us about the situation inside the NHS at the moment, which is really facing its deepest crisis since its foundation after the Second World War. Uh, so thank you very much, Raj, for, for joining us tonight. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank you very much for, for joining us. I know that obviously all NHS workers must be extremely busy right now out on the front line, uh, dealing with patients, you know, working incredibly long hours. And really, it seems like the NHS is only being kept alive at the moment, being, you know, kept uh, afloat by the tireless efforts of uh, doctors, nurses and other NHS staff like yourself, this, this incredible dedication and sacrifice. So thank you for taking, uh, you know, your very valuable time to speak to us uh, tonight. Um, now, um, there is, as I said, really the biggest crisis the NHS has ever faced going on right now. It's extraordinarily alarming to hear about the dire situation inside UK hospitals. A lot of healthcare officials in the press have talked about the NHS being at breaking point. Can you explain for our viewers about the scale of the problem and, and, and try and illustrate just how bad things have become? I think it's, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult really to describe just, just how uh, chaotic the situation is. You know, um, there were some figures that came out today saying uh, 1,200 deaths. That's the second highest number of deaths in a, in a given day since COVID, uh, since COVID the outbreak outbreak first started um i think that's sort of having you know disastrous effect on on our ability to care for our patients on the wards you know i've been told regularly that i can't send my patients to itu because they don't have capacity for anyone who's severely unwell uh, on my ward itself one in three nurses is off sick with um with covid and i think it just goes to show and that's just obviously on a small scale but uh, my whole my hospital the whole nhs is is really struggling with um, what's going on. And I think this is on a, a much worse scale than any winter crisis that we've ever had to face. And we're not even really at the peak of this crisis yet, are we? Um, I mean, how much worse can it get? How much worse will it get in the, the coming weeks? 
I think, I think that's a question that a lot of staff are asking themselves. Uh, how much worse could it get than it already has? But yeah, that's right. So I think I think the current projections right now are that it's going to reach its peak in early to mid-February. But to be honest with you, I think staff are struggling to, to even manage with the levels of stress and, and the demands on the NHS right now. I think we'll obviously see a, a lot more deaths, a lot more cases, but it will have a ripple effect on services that we provide to even patients who don't have COVID, who you know are already waiting longer times to have scans, even to have you know simply their pain medication administered because nurses are so overworked with all kinds of tasks brought up by, by COVID. So I think, um, yeah. We're, we're all sort of dreading how much worse this can get. I mean, they've talked about, um, you know, 5,000 or so bed shortages across the whole of London, for example, as you know, that's that's many hospitals worth of bed beds, obviously, without the staff to, to um, you know, actually man these, uh, these, these, all these patients and look after all these patients. So can you explain then really, you know, what do those numbers translate to in concrete terms? What does the situation look like for workers on the front line in terms of their conditions and, and importantly for patients, uh, not just for COVID patients, but all of those who require healthcare right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think the NHS is completely overwhelmed. And I think in a way that, you know, it doesn't really compare to anything in the past. You know, we're barely supporting the COVID patients as it is. And in some hospitals, they're having to almost ration the amount of oxygen levels that they give to non-COVID patients just to make sure that those who have COVID get enough to survive. They've had to sort of alter their expectations and their targets because of the fact that we don't have the resources to, to meet the needs of these patients. And, you know, it, it, with that in mind, there's no sort of capacity for treatment for other conditions, for other patients. So on my ward, you know, there's been a lot of apologising to patients and saying, sorry, you can't have your scan today because we're going to have to give up the CT department for, for example, you know, scanning of COVID patients. And then, you know, the cleaning measures and so on that come with that mean that patients are having to stay longer in hospital, which puts them at further risk of developing COVID and other infections. And, you know, it, it means that, the, the sort of burden of these of, of essentially the COVID pandemic is yeah affecting a lot more people than than I think a lot of people expect it to. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for for outlining that. And just to say to the viewers at home, if anyone has a question for Raj, they'd like to ask or, or a question for, for for the show in general, please uh, do send them in on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll we'll try and get to those later on. Now, Raj, just going back to the situation, um, the Tories obviously have tried to push a narrative, uh, particularly in the last uh, couple of weeks, that all of this, uh, in terms of the lockdown, the, the crisis in the NHS, they're blaming it all on this new variant, this new mutation uh, in the coronavirus, uh, which has made it much more infectious. That's clearly a scientific fact. But what what is the real situation in terms of this NHS crisis? Was it created overnight simply because of this new mutant strain, uh, or is, or are there underlying weaknesses that have really been exposed by the virus? I think this this new strain, infectious as it is, is simply an excuse to justify you know the, the the way that the NHS is struggling. But I think anyone who's worked in the NHS or even when I was a medical student sort of shadowing doctors on the wards, it's been very clear that this has been a, a long time coming and that um, even without the COVID pandemic, the hospitals would be struggling a lot as is. 
you know, I mean, poor austerity has been absolutely brutal, not just on patients in um, hospitals, but also on GP clinics, on community, physical and mental health services. So, you know, since 2000, there's been a 30% drop in bed capacity in the UK. And, you know, this is just completely bananas because at the end of the day, we've got an aging population. We've got a growing population. Why would we possibly ever want to cut the amount of beds that we have? And yet we do. And in doing so, it's driving away staff. It's it's pushing them to breaking point, you know. And we saw that in the Nightingale's Hospital, where you know, despite building this big, beautiful hospital, you couldn't get the staff to man it. So it was a complete waste of resources and money that could have gone towards supporting patients in hospitals and in the community. So I think you know, it's 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 very easy for them to say that this is all because of this new variant. Mm. But um, the NHS has been on pretty pretty shaky foundations for well, at least a decade now, if not longer. And, and, and just how bad is the staff shortages? How many people have been leaving the NHS in terms of nurses, doctors, other staff over the last uh, few years? I mean, you're a junior doctor. I remember the uh, the junior doctors waging quite a, quite a militant struggle in 2016 against uh, Tory attacks on their conditions. Uh, and that presumably must have driven a lot of uh, people out of the profession then. The nurseries, uh, the nurses, sorry, have had their bursaries um, slashed and uh, and taken away in many cases, and and pay has been frozen for a lot of NHS staff. So you know, what's the cumulative effect of all these Tory attacks on staffing levels? Well, I, I suppose yeah. In, in terms of driving uh, people away, as it were, you know, there are a fair share of junior doctors who you know are unhappy facing the sort of brutal conditions we're under. And a lot of them do end up going to, um, to Australia and New Zealand, for example, or to the States where um, doctors are treated slightly better, as it were. But I think, yeah, touching on that nurse's bursary uh, issue, it's also really important because actually we're not getting enough nurses and doctors coming into the NHS. And, you know, partly that's because, you know, doctors used to be this sort of, you know, relatively well-off profession, but it's becoming increasingly, you know, made into a sort of, working class profession without that status without the security that came with it and nurses have been you know for, for decades exploited you know these nurses bursaries that are being removed means that people are unable to sort of take on that university debt and so you know i was reading the other day that one in ten nurses uh, spots in the nhs are empty you know we've got at least a 10 percent shortage i think it's probably a lot more than that and like i said you can see that in the nightingales but you can see that on any given day or night in the woods where you have not enough nurses to cover way too many patients and what it means is that you get nurses a lot more exhausted than they should be and i think you know no one really wants to talk about that as a sort of inconvenient truth behind a lot of the issues in the nhs understanding and and what about the uh, cumulative impact of privatisation and outsourcing? Um, and you've had things like the uh, the Lansley reforms that were brought in uh, earlier last decade, and then you know a cumulative uh, privatisation from not only the Tories but New Labour before that. Um, you know what kind of impact does that have on being able to uh, coordinate uh, the NHS and the response to the pandemic? Mm, absolutely. I think, again, yeah, privatisation is its big issue facing the NHS. You know, I was actually just on a, on a, one of my uh, hospital's private wards today, 
And, you know, something as small as the fact that they don't use the same intranet system as us really delays the way that we can manage care. And it might sound like a small thing, but these sort of small things accumulate into big issues. So, you know, I was chatting to a nurse on the private wing and I said, what do you do when you have a COVID patient? They said, oh, it's easy. We just pass it on to the uh, to the public sector beds as mm. it were. So I think, you know, in that sense, that's not really a reliable or stable way of delivering healthcare. Be doing it just for the sake of profit and not for patient clinical outcomes which is what the nhs or rather the public sector does mm. but i think you know and we also know that hospitals are often built on private money through these um i think private finance uh, private financial initiatives i think they call the pfis mm. and so that means that hospitals are constantly sort of drowning in debt and that encourages them to cut resources wherever mm. they can impacts on not the management the staff yeah, and presumably, meanwhile, the the management consultants are all getting uh, a nice cut of, of, of all of this uh, money as well, this taxpayers' money. Uh, so I'm sure they're not uh, suffering at the present time, uh, or have, have unlikely to have been suffering at any point. Uh, all these uh, big business management consultants. But just to go back then to this question of the staff shortages and the the, the conditions inside the NHS, what does uh, all of these pressures mean? in terms of uh, the conditions for NHS workers now, not, not just at the current time, but even since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it's, it's, you know, some of the, the images from inside hospitals of, of staff having to kind of make their own PPE and, uh, and, and doctors and nurses being kind of gagged from speaking out against this. Um, it, it's really quite shocking stuff in terms of, uh, you know, it, must, it feels like it must be like a war zone uh, on the on the front line, um, is that how it feels from your perspective and, and from that of your colleagues? Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's 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 a sort of protracted war in that everyone is just sort of facing this unrelenting exhaustion. So you know, just uh, last week, the nurses on my ward, well, I think nurses in the hospital, were told that their annual leave is probably going to be cancelled, and you know, you, you realise that. This is partly to do with the shortage of nurses and the need to fill the rotors and so on. But partly it's just an indifference to the suffering of the people on the wards. And I think, you know, there's this whole sort of, uh, you know, lit spirit type thing of, you know, keep calm and carry on. And that was fine during, you know, maybe the first week or two of the pandemic. But by now, you know, there's there's very, very regular cases of burnout, people just really, really struggling. And, and that has an impact on patient care because, you know, mm. when I'm tired after a long shift, I'm more likely to make mistakes. I'm more likely to not pick up on small things that could um, really mm. help my patients recover. So, you know, it, it's it's not just a, a war on the NHS, it's on the general population and, and their ability to, you know, survive mm. conditions that, you know, in, in a properly funded NHS um, would be sort of a lot easier to, to manage. There was a, a survey in by the BMA, the British Medical Association, my my union, uh, earlier in the pandemic, and it showed that uh, 44% of doctors who responded to the survey uh, have started to suffer from depression, anxiety, stress, burnout, or other mental health conditions exacerbated mm. by COVID. I think you know that's just startling. That almost you know one in two doctors is mentally struggling, you know, to to really even wake up in the morning to come to their job, and you see that in the exhaustion in the wards. Well, I mean, you've actually uh, ended up answering a question from from the audience. Uh, Dylan in Sheffield asks uh, whether this disaster mode is starting to erode the the, the quality of care offered uh, that, that can be offered by uh, by staff, and also, you know, what health toll this is having on NHS staff itself. It seems like you've you've answered that second uh, part of the question already there, really. 
But going back to that first part, then you know what what is the impact this this long term uh, kind of struggle that staff are having to wage uh, the long hours? You know what do, what toll does that take in terms of the ability of of NHS staff to be able to offer decent quality care? You know what does it look like from a patient's perspective? Well, yeah, like, like I like I mentioned before about you know something as simple as pain medication. Uh, you know, um, patients who have sort of long-term pain will need their medication roughly at set times, and often they'll they'll sort of come out of their rooms or come out of their base to the sort of reception desk saying, "Can I really have my pain medication, please? I'm really struggling." And you know, often we have to say, "Sorry, we're really busy with something else. We'll get it to you as soon as possible." And I think you know, even even something as as well, not small but as as routine as that uh, sort of builds up and so patients are, are leaving hospital later than they should do they're sometimes being um left to to sort of have to come back for a follow-up because we need those beds so desperately because of that pressure from the top and i think yeah and that's the sort of impact that it's having on patients is that they're not getting the you know high quality healthcare that the nhs was set up to provide and i think that's I think that's just devastating and it sort of it makes it difficult to to come in in the morning knowing that I can't be the best doctor I can be because you know forces outside my control because of mm. the decade of austerity and a government that really doesn't care much about the so-called health heroes that they clapped for earlier in the pandemic. Definitely. And you're obviously looking forward uh, in terms of you know how to get out of this crisis. It seems in the short term, obviously, the key thing is for a real lockdown that's going to actually reduce case numbers, reduce infections. It seems like even here, though, the Tories obviously are trying to shift the blame. Uh, you've seen them, you know, in the last few days in particular, saying that people aren't following the rules and uh, following the, the guidelines, even though Boris himself is obviously breaking guidelines, uh, you know, cycling off the, to the other side of London rather than sticking in Downing Street. But um, it seems like, you know, here, really, again, it's the Tories trying to shift the blame from, from the fact that they are the ones who who dithered and delayed bringing in restrictions and lockdowns. And even at the moment, it seems like really the main problem is that a lot of businesses that weren't open the first time round are now open uh, and been reclassified as essential uh, so there's a lot more workers having to go into work. There's a lot more uh, people on the streets, uh, in, you know, doing things that are perfectly legal according to the rules. But, uh, you know, basically the government is is giving a free hand to big business to go about, uh, you know, trying to carry on making their profits. So it seems like, again, the Tories are blaming everyone but the real culprit, which is themselves and the bosses. I just want to look a little bit further ahead than that. Obviously, the, the 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 real solution to this is not just endless lockdows, but the vaccination uh, program. And you know, what is the perspective from from inside the NHS about this uh, vaccination program? What are some of the key problems that the country faces in terms of trying to roll out the vaccines as quickly as possible? I think a lot of my colleagues are really excited when the good news came that you know the vaccines had been approved and that they they were basically good vaccines. Um, and I think with that excitement, it, it very quickly turned to to frustration because you know 
it, it was just an absolutely chaotic rollout. So, you know, I'm speaking to my colleagues across uh, and my sort of old uni mates who are now doctors across the country. And, you know, you're getting all kinds of weird stories of, you know, for example, administrative staff getting vaccinated before people who work on the wards. Or, you know, the fact that I was speaking to a cleaner today who said that they've only been approved for vaccinations from next week. This vaccine has been knocking about since at least December, if not earlier. And, you know, there's just these constant barriers to actually getting a vaccine. No one has emailed us to tell us how to get a vaccine. It's only through word of mouth. We've only found you know, the secret phone number that gets you access to the vaccine recently. It's for my hospital. It's a one hour drive to get to the nearest vaccine site. And if you're a nurse on a 12 hour shift, I mean, you're lucky to be able to drive home in one piece, let alone to go to another hospital to pick up the vaccine. So, you know, I, I think it's, it could have been done very easily. And I think, you know, I speak to a lot of my colleagues and we sort of agree that, you know, if you gave us an Excel spreadsheet and you gave us control, we'd probably do a better job than these so-called bureaucrats and stuff who've just really, really scuppered it. And, you know, that's going to have effect because, you know, I think they're saying that over 2 million people have been vaccinated with the first dose, but only about 400,000 with the second dose. So, you know, it's, it's all big headlines and so on, but actually on the ground, not enough of us are getting vaccinated. And even when we are, it's not, sort of to completion so yeah so what what do you think are the solutions then going forwards you know what what would what would a socialist uh, labor government do uh, in this uh, situation i mean in terms of uh, the vaccines themselves even before they start to be distributed with these sort of you know issues with the supply chain it's, it's very straightforward just nationalize the pharmaceuticals i think it's ridiculous that there's a profit mechanism in life-saving medication whether it's a vaccine or any of the other drugs my patients take on the wards. So once you've nationalised the big pharma, we need to always have a massive drive for volunteers led by the trade unions and sort of community organisations and a massive vaccination programme. And workers need to be leading on this. It can't be these management bureaucrats who sit behind a computer all day earning a six-figure salary. It has to be people who understand the need for vaccines. So I think, you know, it would be a coordinated, centrally planned thing as opposed to the sort of chaotic patchy coverage we have under the Tories with vaccines that, you know, often aren't even getting to the countries that have ordered them. So it would, it would be a lot more organised and it would be a lot more transparent. And I think it would probably save a lot of, well, a lot of people who probably died um, avoidable deaths because of this sort of inefficient rollout of the vaccines. Definitely, definitely. And I think then looking beyond the vaccines even in the long term, you know, as, as you said, this crisis in the NHS wasn't created overnight. It's, it existed before the pandemic and it'll exist after the pandemic as well. We've had an interesting comment from uh, Siobhan in London who's pointed out that the Tories have, have used every kind of problem inside the NHS, or every crisis, they've used it as an opportunity to actually attack the NHS further and to make the case basically that public healthcare doesn't work, that we need the market as a solution. So clearly there's going to be big battles, even after the pandemic, to save the NHS, to, to repair the damage done from the pandemic and to, to, to try and rebuild and, and move forwards. Um, so, you know, what, what, what are the solutions in the long term for the NHS? I mean, I remember it was only a few years ago, the Red Cross, I think, declared the NHS to be in a humanitarian emergency uh, in terms of, you know, patients uh, kind of lying in, in corridors and things like that. So, you know, clearly the, the NHS has already been overstretched and, um, and things are only going to be worse in the years ahead, even after the pandemic. So, what what does the labour movement really need to be fighting for 
you know, it was the labor movement that created the NHS in the wake of the Second World War. What does the labor movement need to be doing now to save the NHS, to save our NHS? I think, first of all, we need to make sure the NHS is our NHS and not bit by bit becoming the NHS of, you know, these private sector parasites and so on. So it needs to be under public ownership. But even if it's under public ownership, we have to really define who the public, as it were, is. Who is the, the government that's running things? You know, a nationalised NHS under the Tories doesn't really mean much because it's just being torn apart by these sort of piranha-like uh, parasites, as it were. Um, so we need to, you know, renationalize, as it were, the, the private sector elements. So all these wards that have been created on private money, you need to wipe off that debt and say this is for, this is healthcare for people. You need to, like I said before, sort of nationalizing um, big pharma, but also the care homes in the community that are often sort of, you know, using exploited care workers to provide subpar care because. They, they need to find a profit mechanism somewhere within it. Or, but it needs to be under the control of the workers. I think there needs to be these sort of worker committees made up of the people who work on the wards, you know, the doctors and the nurses, but also the healthcare assistants, even the porters and the cleaners, the people who genuinely understand how a hospital works to run things. It can't be, like I said before, these bureaucrats on a six-figure salary who often are really out of touch. And, you know, they, they send us emails saying, you're doing great, oh, keep working hard and so on. Well, you know, they don't really add much value to, to patient care. I think also we need to fill the ranks. I mean, the massive recruitment drive. And to do that, we need to make sure that people aren't afraid of the university debt that comes with becoming a nurse or a doctor. And you need to make sure they're being paid fair amounts so no one feels like they're being exploited mm -hmm. on the wards. You know, there needs to be an increase in pay, but also an increase in workers so that you have that, that workforce that can provide for patients. And, you know, to do that, we need to have a fighting force of socialism in the Labour Party and the trade unions. This needs to be an active effort. It needs to be a coordinated effort. So unions like the BMA and the Royal College of Nursing, uh, just to give a couple of examples, need to be a lot more militant in what they demand. And it's not enough to just sort of nip at the government's heels to make radical demands. Off, um, off the Tory government and a radical plan for the future. So I think none of this is, you know, is difficult to achieve, but it, it needs to be done in an organised way. And I think, you know, the only way to do that is with a programme of bold socialist demands. It's not enough to just uh, complain about it, but you have to move and act in order for this to, to be achieved. Thanks, Raj. I think that's a really important point to, to end on for tonight, really, which is that this is not only a public health crisis we're going through, but a political question that ultimately requires a socialist solution. So I think you're 100% right. The Labour movement needs to be arguing for bold socialist uh, policies to save the NHS. Uh, and, and thank you really for joining us tonight to outline uh, what that would look like and, uh, and to give us a, a very graphic picture of what's going on inside the NHS at this time, the catastrophe uh, that, that is, is facing uh, NHS staff and patients and the whole country really. So thank you again for, for taking the time to join us. And uh, yeah, obviously wish you the best of luck uh, and solidarity in, in the work that you're doing. Uh, obviously all of us here uh, and at home will be, uh, be you know, fully behind NHS workers, not just with claps, but with uh, political demands uh, supporting uh, with genuine solidarity, uh, fighting for better paying conditions. Uh, as we say, you know, claps don't pay the bills. So thank you very much again for joining us. Thank you. And uh, as, as Raj uh, said at the end there, the important thing really is if we want to save the NHS, we need to, to, to fight the Tories and, and get rid of the private parasites. And that means struggling for socialism. So 
we want to say to everyone at home is that if you've uh, agreed with what Raj had to say tonight uh, and you want to help support us in the struggle for socialism, then please, of course, not only like and subscribe uh, the podcast, the videos, uh, and share our articles, but please visit socialist.net forward slash donate and socialist.net forward slash subscribe, where you can donate uh, to Socialist Appeal and subscribe to our digital uh, paper, which is still being produced even in lockdown. And of course, uh, if you haven't already, uh, please get in touch at socialist.net forward slash join in order to actually join us in the struggle for socialism, to get involved with other Marxist activists in the fight for socialist policies, to save the NHS, to fight the Tories, and to bring in a socialist transformation of society. So please do that. Please support us. Uh, like and subscribe the podcast and YouTube channel. And we'll be back soon with uh, more interviews, more theory, more analysis, more history and current events, uh, all brought to you by Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of Labour and Youth. Thank you very much. See you next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marxist Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.